0: Well, let's take up our copies of God's Word at this time and turn to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter two, verses 28 and 29. Let's listen now to the Word of God, beginning in Romans two verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. May the Lord bless His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back in our scriptures to Romans chapter 2, the passage that we read, verses 28 and 29. Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. Uh, Once again, just reminding ourselves of these verses that we'll be Meditating upon this morning, Paul says, "...for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the Spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God." Now we've seen in recent weeks the true value of circumcision, the true value, as Paul says subsequently in the beginning of chapter 3, the advantage, the value of being a Jew and receiving the sign of the covenant, having this outward sign and this outward membership in the people of God. Chapter 3, verse 2 says that uh, perhaps the greatest of all the outward benefits of outward membership in the people of God was that the oracles of God were committed to God's people. And so children growing up in a home where they had the Scriptures, they had the ordinances of private, public, and family worship, uh, and they had the advantage of knowing the truth of God. Not all of them believed. Not all of them were saved. In fact, that's precisely why the Apostle wrote chapter 2 of Romans, to confront those who were outward members of the Old Covenant people of God. Those who prided themselves in being Jews and having the oracles of God and hearing the Word, but they were not doers of the Word. And they didn't understand and believe all that the Word was saying, pointing them to the eternal Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all of those outward advantages which were designed by God to point them and lead them to repentance and faith in Christ, were, as it were, utterly vain and meaningless apart from actually believing in Christ and responding in obedience to the Word of God. And so we talked about real, true, spiritual circumcision as the thing to which the outward ordinance pointed. That is, being born again, being regenerated, whether it's the old covenant or the new covenant, whether it's circumcision of the heart, cutting away the flesh, cutting out the old heart and giving the sinner a new heart of flesh and faith and obedience, or whether it's the new covenant idea of baptism, cleansing away the old nature uh, that, that the new man might be renewed in righteousness and holiness. Either way, you have this emphasis on being a true Jew, being truly circumcised, and having this true inward saving reality. Now, according to the Apostle Paul, to be a true Jew, again, these unconverted Jews, they prided themselves in being physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They prided themselves in being Israelites after the flesh, in being Jews, they called themselves Jews, they loved that title, but according to Paul, to be a true Jew under the Old Testament, in the same way that to be a true Christian under the New Testament is to be a born again believer. That's what it means to be a true Jew. That's what it means to be a true Christian. Whether you're speaking Old Covenant or New Covenant, to be a true Jew or a true Christian is to be a truly born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for many of us, this just is so obvious, but there are many relevant theological implications of this. And there are a number of them that we could consider. I'm going to mention a few of them and then try to focus on the one that we've chosen for our subject this morning. But if we look at what Paul says about outward circumcision and inward circumcision about being an outward Jew and being an inward Jew if we follow the logic then we're going to see that Paul is actually making an important distinction here he's not denying that certain people are circumcised and have an outward membership in God's covenant people under the Old Testament he's not denying that in fact chapter 3 verse 2 he says there's a great advantage to that outward membership that outward ordinance so he's he's highlighting the visible, uh, the visible church, we could say, the visible ordinance, the visible people of God, but he's contrasting it. He's distinguishing it from the invisible reality, the invisible church. And this is a very important distinction because we can easily go to one extreme or the other. We can be like the Roman Catholics who all they're concerned about is the outward. I mean, if you've been outwardly baptized, you're regenerate. You're justified. If you're outwardly in communion with the Roman Catholic Church under the papacy, then you're headed for heaven. Maybe you might take a detour to purgatory or whatever, but you're headed for heaven if you have the outward. It's all about the outward. And then we could swing to the other extreme in many evangelical churches today where in overreaction to Rome... It's all about the inward to the point where it's hardly even significant uh, to to be a member of a true church and be under the discipline and oversight of elders. And many churches don't even have a membership role. The outward membership is viewed as peripheral, as unimportant, if not just completely ignored. Um, And and the idea here is Paul is saying, look, uh, the, the outward and the inward are important as long as you recognize that the outward advantages are pointing to the inward reality. We could consider that. Secondly, we could consider another relevant doctrinal implication, uh, the inclusion of the Gentiles in the New Testament church as part of the Israel of God. The inclusion of the Gentiles, believing Gentiles, in the New Testament church as the Israel of God. This is part and parcel of Paul's teaching throughout the New Testament epistles. Romans 11, he says that this olive tree of the covenant community, some of the branches, the the natural branches of the Jews who rejected Christ are cut off and set aside. And then these wild olive branches, the believing Gentiles, are brought into that olive tree? And what does that mean? If the Gentile believers are grafted into the olive tree of which the Jews are the natural branches, it means that the Gentiles, as Galatians 6 says, by faith are part of the Israel of God. Ephesians 2 talks about God taking of the Jews and Gentiles and making one new man out of them. Taking away the middle wall of partition, uniting them together through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Gentile believers are brought, Paul says, into the commonwealth of Israel. They're no longer strangers to the covenants of promise. They're grafted into the covenant people of God and become heirs of those same promises. And of course, Galatians 3, at the end of that chapter, Paul says that if you are in Christ, you are Abraham's seed. So he's talking about in terms of the covenant community, those who rejected Christ, cut off, those who received Christ, though they be Gentiles, are brought in to the Israel of God. And what Paul says here highlights the fact that to be a true Jew is really a matter not of your ethnicity, but of your heart. And the Gentiles, even in the Old Testament, you see examples of this. People that are not descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Caleb the Kenizzite. You have Rahab the harlot. Time and time again, the Lord converts someone, circumcises their heart, even brings them into the covenant community, grafting them in as really a foreshadowing of what we see in the New Testament. We could consider that. Thirdly, we could consider that the Sign of regeneration in the Old Testament was applied to infants prior to their conversion. Think about that for a moment. Circumcision points to regeneration. Paul says that here. To be truly or inwardly circumcised is to be regenerate, is to have a circumcised heart. Now, if circumcision is a spiritual sign pointing to regeneration, Why in the world would the Israelites have applied that sign that signifies regeneration? Why would they have applied that to little babies in their infancy? Before those babies had given any indication of conversion. Why would they do that? Because God commanded them to apply the sign of regeneration to infants prior to any evidence of regeneration or conversion. Now, if we have a problem with applying a sign that indicates a spiritual saving reality to an infant, our first problem is with infant circumcision. And we need to wrestle with that, which is indisputably the ordinance of God throughout the entire Old Covenant. God even commanded that Ishmael, that Esau, so on and so forth, would receive circumcision and have these outward benefits of being members of God's visible covenant community. Uh, So again, we could follow and trace that out for the implications that it has for infant baptism, but we're not going to do that. This morning we're going to focus our attention on uh, the relevant implication of the spiritual character of a truly circumcised heart. That's what we're going to spend our time on this morning. The spiritual character... Of a truly circumcised heart. In other words, this text tells us something about someone who's truly born again. Whether you want to call them a true Jew, a true Christian, this tells us what that true Christian is going to be like in one respect. A very important aspect of a true Christian. It says, whose praise is not from men, but from God that they're right at the end of the chapter. That someone who's a true Jew, who's inwardly circumcised, uh, in the Spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. The person where the heart of that person is inscribed with the law of God. And I think that could be what it's saying here when it says, in the Spirit, not in the letter. What Paul could be saying here is, Not referring to the Holy Spirit, but referring to that person's heart or spirit. Think of Jeremiah 31, where the law of God is written on the heart and on the inward parts, on the spirit of an individual who is converted. And he could be saying here that uh, someone who is truly regenerate has the law of God, the oracles of God, written upon his spirit, not merely inscribed in, in letters on the stone tablets, but inscribed on His Spirit or on His heart. Uh, He could also mean, another option here, instead of the word in, you could translate it as by. That the person who has a truly regenerated heart circumcision, uh, that the person has that done by the Spirit, not by the letter. And so it's important to preach biblical truth. It's important to read your Bible and teach that Bible to your children so that like Timothy they know the scriptures from an early age and it's able to make them wise unto salvation the oracles of God are this great benefit Paul says of outward covenant membership but apart from the work of the spirit it's a dead letter so Paul could be saying here that true heart circumcision is something that is done by the spirit and not merely by the letter It's not merely the words on the page that regenerate someone. It is the words on the page that the Spirit then takes and applies in the hearts of God's elect. And so that's why we pray for people to be converted. It wouldn't be enough to just preach sermons. It wouldn't be enough to just share the Gospel with people and hand out tracts. We need to be praying that the Spirit of God would give the increase so that the letters on the page are given life and power to convert sinners and give them this true, regenerate heart of circumcision. So, be that as it may, it's telling us that the person who's experienced that, that their praise is not from men, but from God. Their praise is not from men, but from God. Now, in making this statement, Paul is reminding his readers that the term Jew actually means praise. So there's a bit of a play on words here. Paul, as a Hebrew scholar, he's reminding his Jewish audience especially, that the term Jew means praise. That's where it comes from. Genesis 29, verse 35, when Leah is giving birth to a son... She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. So here, Leah, the wife of Jacob, gives birth to this son and she praises the Lord. She's thanking God. She's excited about what God has done in giving her the fruit of the womb. And therefore she names this child Judah. That is, praise And so Paul is drawing on that imagery from the Hebrew word, from the Hebrew name Judah. He's saying, if you're a true child of Judah, if you're a true Judahite, which is really what the term Jew means, if that's really true of you, you who pride yourself in calling yourself a Jew, if you're a true Jew, then that's going to impact something in your life. Your praise is not going to be from men, but from God. Now, Just stopping for a moment and applying this to ourselves, it's very important that we don't forget the meaning of words. It's very important that we don't forget the origin and the significance of some of the terms that we use on a regular basis. Think about the term Christian, which we've already considered this morning. That in a way, today, the term Christian has something of the same significance that in the Old Covenant, it it would have meant to say that someone is a Jew. If we think in terms of religion, somebody is a practicing Jew. Well, in the New Covenant, the term is Christian. This is the outward term that is used for outward members of the covenant community, at the very least, not denying the inward sense. But you see the, the similarity. But what does this word Christian mean? We hear it frequently, perhaps we use this term on a frequent basis, perhaps we fancy that we ourselves are Christians, but are we really Christians? Because even as the term Jew had an outward meaning, but Paul says it has a real inward meaning, apart from which the outward meaning you can just throw it on the scrap heap, same with the word Christian. What is the significance of this term? What does it mean to be a Christian, not just outwardly, but inwardly? Well, if you were to pursue that for yourself, you would look it up in Acts 11.26. We're told that Paul was preaching in Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Other people were calling them Christians. Why were they calling them Christians? Because they were followers of Christ. Because they regularly assembled with the people of God to hear the preaching of the Word of God. The preaching of the teachings of Christ expounded and applied These people were labeled by other people who were watching them from the outside, and they said, These people gather regularly, they're unified, they're in this congregation, this assembly in the church. They're not forsaking the assembly, they're there on a regular basis uh, for a whole year consistently, and they're hearing and believing and doing the Word of God. They're disciples. In Greek as well as in English, there's this idea of discipline. These people are committed, they deny themselves, they take up their cross, they follow Christ. And they're concerned that other people come to Christ. The church in Antioch was one of the most missionary minded churches in all the early church in the book of Acts. So they're concerned about following Christ, being under the discipline and authority of Christ through their local church, shepherded by the local elders. And people saw this and they said, that's a Christian. Those are Christians. So again, examine yourself. Is it the case that you're taking upon yourself outward labels and designations and and statuses that are not the case in your heart, in your life, in your priorities? Well, Paul is bringing this point to bear upon the Jews. And he says to be a true Jew, it impacts your praise. Now, when we look at the name Judah, understand this that it doesn't it's not limited to people from the tribe of Judah. Paul was a Jew, but he was also from the tribe of Benjamin. He was not from the tribe of Judah. And the reason for this is that historically over time, the northern 10 tribes in Israel were wiped out and taken into captivity by the Assyrians so that really the only preservation and the only continuous manifestation of God's old covenant people was in the southern kingdom of Judah, the tribe of Judah. They were the ones that went into captivity in Babylon and then were brought back. And obviously, the Lord Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem of Judah, of Judea. So you have this designation Jew, but really it refers to anyone from the twelve tribes who clung to that continued representation of God's covenant in the tribe of Judah. So it could be Paul, who was from the tribe of Benjamin. It could be anyone who uh, entered into the covenant community. Even Gentiles were brought in. But specifically, it refers to Israelites after the flesh. Now, Paul says that has implications for your praise. The name Judah can refer to a number of things. It can refer to one for whom others praise God. We see that with the origin of the name when Leah praises God because of Judah. So, in a sense, Paul is taking one of several possible interpretations here, one of several implications of that name Judah. But one of them is someone for whom others praise God. And, Ironically, in Romans 2, Paul is saying that these hypocritical Jews are not the sorts of people for which the Gentiles are praising God, but rather, verse 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. It's similar to David when he committed murder and adultery and when the Lord confronted him through Nathan the prophet. And he said, um, your sin has given occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. So, these Jews are not giving God a good name, and they're not the sort of people that others look at them and praise the Lord for them. To be a true Jew means to be someone that other people look at them and they see something to be thankful for, something that gives honor and glory to God, and so they praise God because of you. In addition, the name Jew or Judah can refer to one who himself praises God. I mean, if you're a Judahite, if you're a praiseite, if you're somebody who praises God, who reflects the very meaning of that name Judah, then then you're not going to be like the nine lepers from the nation of Israel who when they received healing from the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ, they went on their way, but it was only one of them who returned to give thanks, and he was a foreigner, and Jesus is amazed. He's amazed that those who bear the name of Jew, who ought to be praising God, they're not the ones who return to glorify God, but it was the Samaritan. To be a true Jew is, first and foremost, to give all praise and honor to God. Thirdly, It indicates one who is praiseworthy. Not just one for whom others give thanks to God, but one who is the object of praise. And of course, this points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jacob was prophetically blessing his sons in Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 10, we see a prophecy of Christ that is really relevant for us this morning. Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? "...the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people." And so, the true Jew in the ultimate sense, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, the object of all praise and honor and glory, being fully God and fully man. And even in His humanity, the Lord Jesus Christ, we're told, grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. So, when Paul says that the true Jew is one whose praise is not from men, but from God, he's really speaking here uh, in, in a figurative way. He's, saying, he's speaking by way of contrast. He is not saying that human favor or human praise is inherently bad. But he's saying that if someone's praise, the praise that they seek and the praise that they receive, is from man and not from God. Or he's saying that if they're seeking the praise of man to the exclusion of the praise of God, or to the detriment of their pursuit of God's praise and commendation, then that's the problem there. That it's not human favor uh, is inherently bad. Jesus grew in favor with God and man. Uh, he was praiseworthy. And if we're true Christians, we ought to be uh, not praiseworthy, we ought not to be drawing attention to ourselves, but we ought to be drawing attention to the One who has given us the good works that others can see and give praise to Him. But Paul is not focusing here on one for whom others praise God, or one who himself praises God, or one who is himself praiseworthy. He's focusing on the aspect of the name Jew or Judah that speaks of one whose chief concern is to seek the praise of God. One whose chief concern is to seek honor and approval and praise and commendation from God. The true Jew doesn't mind receiving uh, honor or recognition from other people. Doesn't mind growing in favor with God and man. But his focus, his chief concern, is to seek honor, approval, and praise from God. Whose praise is not from men, but from God. Whose approval are you seeking? That's the question Paul's asking here. From whom are you chiefly seeking honor and recognition and praise? Who are you seeking to please as of first importance? And according to Paul, this is a question that the unconverted person, simply it brings them, it it, it showcases their hypocrisy. This is a question that unveils Uh, The fallen, sinful, unconverted heart like no other. Because fallen man's lust for human approval is a natural aspect of his humanity. We desire as sinners, as idolatrous fallen sinners coming into this world as children of wrath, as bond slaves to Satan... We want human praise. We want human recognition. We want human approval. We want to please other people. We want honor and praise from man. And we might seek out honor from God. We might seek out to please God. But if it ever conflicts with our pursuit of the praise of men, we throw it out the window. And the reason that we lust after human approval uh, is, is twofold. At least two chief reasons. Two chief ways in which we succumb to this obsession with the praise of men. First, pride. By nature, we're proud. 1 John 2 tells us to beware of the things that are in the world. In other words, the things that dominate the hearts and lives of the people that are in the world. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Our pride in our reputation, our pride in our appearance, in the things that we have, the things that we've achieved and accomplished, our pride in self, the pride of life, that is inherent in us as fallen sinners. And because of that pride, we seek the praise and adulation and approval of others, and God absolutely hates that. You see in Acts chapter 12 verse 23 when Herod gives an amazing speech and the people of Tyre and Sidon cry out, the voice of a God and not of a man. Herod's idolatrous pride prevents him from calming them down and giving glory to God and God strikes him dead by way of an angel from heaven. And he is eaten by worms because his pride, his idolatrous pride sought to make a God of himself, or sought to receive honor and praise to become the object of people's worship and adulation, it was his idolatrous pride. Secondly, fear. Proverbs 29, verse 25, the fear of man brings a snare. So on the one hand, you have Herod who's wanting to receive all this approval and praise, To just boost his reputation. There's that idolatrous pride. But you see we can fall into idolatrous fear as well. And the natural man is dominated by this idolatrous fear. The fear of not being liked. The fear of being different. The fear of not having the favor of men. The fear of being embarrassed. The fear of... Of not pleasing other people. Not meeting the expectations that they have upon you. And if you do something that offends them, you do something that they think you shouldn't be doing. There's a fear of doing that. We see in our own culture, with social media, you know, you want to get likes. You want people to like what you're saying. And we have a fear of not being liked, of not being appreciated, of not being valued, and of not having a good reputation. The fear of man brings a snare. You see, when we fear man, what are we doing? We're replacing God with other people. What should be our chief concern? It should be to please God. Our number one concern at all times should be, what does God think of what I'm doing? Does God like what I'm doing? What does God's Word say about the attitude that I have right now, about the words that I'm speaking, about the actions that I'm taking? What does God think about me and what I'm doing? That should be, if we're going to fear anything, that should be it. Fear God. And it's interesting in the Scriptures, two of the most frequent commands that you find in the Bible are these, fear God. And with respect to everything else, fear not. These are two of the most common exhortations throughout all the Bible. In fact, the most common exhortation in all the Bible is, do not be afraid, fear not. But one of the other most common is fear God, fear the Lord. It appears everywhere. Just use a concordance. You can look up the many, many instances of this. But you see, they go together. If we're highly concerned about what God thinks And even in the most extreme example, Jesus says, if if all else fails, consider the reality of the final judgment. That you're fearing what men can do in torturing your body, but you ought to be fearing what God can do to body and soul in hell. Again, that's the most extreme example of the worst thing that man can do versus the worst thing that God can do uh, if he is displeased. But it applies across the board. And the question is, whom do you fear? Do you fear God? Or do you fear what other people think of you? That's what Paul is getting at here. And uh, these Jews, these unconverted Jews to whom he's speaking, especially were known for fearing man. They were known for their pride. And they were known for falling into the snare of the fear of man. Let me give you some examples. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount points out that the Pharisees of His day were chiefly concerned with the approval of other people. Matthew 6 verse 2 Therefore when you do a charitable deed do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Even in their religious life, their chief concern was the praise of men, the glory of men. Jesus points out again, Luke 16 and verse 15. He said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Listen to this, I'm going to read this again. You are those who justify yourselves before men. In other words, trying to look righteous to get a good reputation and receive approval and praise from men. But God knows your hearts, for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus says, of course it's possible to grow in favor with God and man. Jesus himself did it. We ought to do good works, so people praise our Father in heaven. But If you're thinking that there's going to be a 100% compatibility between fearing God and fearing man, pleasing God and pleasing man, then you're deluded. Jesus says at a certain point, as with himself who was crucified, uh, at a certain point, these things are going to run afoul of each other. At a certain point it's going to become evident that if you're conformed to the pattern of this world doing what is going to make other people like you and value you and praise you at a certain point if you're committed to that, that is going to run contrary to your commitment to Christ. Because you're going to have to do things if you're really going to honor Christ, if you're really going to obey God, you're going to have to hate father and mother, you're going to have to choose Christ and choose the Word of God above the, the, the word of men above the preferences of other people, eventually these two things are going to come in conflict. And he says for the Pharisees, it's clear which side of the aisle they stood upon. They loved the praises of men. Jesus again, uh, John 5 verse 44, How can you believe who receive honor from another and do not seek the honor that comes from from the only God. What's he saying? He's saying you're idolaters. There's one God. And if you were concerned with honoring Him and receiving the honor of those who do honor Him, then you would believe on me and have your sins forgiven and you would receive salvation as a free gift such that nobody, including yourself, can boast. If you were concerned with the honor of God, you would believe a gospel of free grace not by works, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but by the free, unmerited favor of God Himself. If you were concerned about that, you would believe. But you can't believe, you won't believe. Because you're too concerned about receiving honor for yourself from other people. You're not concerned about receiving honor from God. You're not concerned about giving honor to God. There's one God, but you've made yourself a God, and that's why you reject His gospel. Jesus is highlighting here the character of these unconverted men. John chapter 12, verse 43. This is a classic example. John chapter 12. Uh, Actually, let's start in verse 42. Listen to this. Nevertheless, Even among the rulers, these are members of the Sanhedrin, the most powerful people, many of them Pharisees, most powerful people in the land of Judea, among the Jews. It says, among the rulers, many believed in Him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess Him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God." They're willing to believe on Christ privately in their own little prayer closet. But when it comes to outwardly confessing the Son of God around people who don't share that belief, they're afraid to do it and they conform to the unbelief and the deafening silence of those around them who will not confess and profess the name of Jesus Christ. And my friends, nothing is more common among people who are even in the life of the church, perhaps children that have grown up in the church, They get to a certain point. Perhaps they've taken on friendships and relationships that involve people that either don't believe in Christ or these people are not all that zealous for the Christian faith. They're Christians in name only. And now all of a sudden it becomes difficult to stand up and profess to be a Christian and to live like it in your decisions, in your priorities, in public. To prioritize the Lord's day. And to keep that day holy, to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy as God has commanded. And it cuts against your friends. And to stand for Christ on that principle or on any other principle of the Word of God, and to be obedient and to please God, it it just conflicts with your reputation. You feel embarrassed, you're anxious to do it, and so you're silent or you're disobedient. And you just don't profess and obey Christ. And that is so common. Uh, You'll seek God's approval, but when it conflicts with your own relationships and reputation, and you're afraid of offending others, you just don't do it. And uh, Samuel Rutherford, one of my favorite quotes from Samuel Rutherford, speaking more broadly of the church in his day, he said, many are friends to the success of Reformation, not to Reformation. Many are friends to the success of Reformation, not to Reformation. When things are going well, everybody will stand up and, yes, I agree with that, Reformation. But when that pursuit of Reformation, or fill in the blank with obedience to Christ, professing His name, evangelizing, whatever it is, when that comes into conflict with the praise of men, all of a sudden, they're silent, they're disobedient. They compromise. Uh, You think of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, how many Jews were there in Babylon? Many. How many bowed down to the image? Most of them, all but three. Why weren't there more than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that were standing up and refusing to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's idolatrous golden image? Think about that. Why weren't there more? I think it's obvious why there weren't more uh, they were they were friends to the success of the jewish religion or of god's covenant promises and god's commandments but but when it became inconvenient they were out well this fleshly fear of man is a snare to believers as well when paul says that the true believer or the true jew That his praise is not from men, but from God. Understand, he's not saying that true Christians don't struggle with this. He's not saying that true Christians don't find themselves compromising. That true Christians never sin against Christ in this particular way. What he's saying is that the true believer is one who sincerely and consistently, albeit imperfectly, seeks God's approval that that's the pattern of his or her life the true believer the true jew the true christian is one who sincerely and consistently albeit imperfectly seeks god's approval even at the expense of the approval of other people but we do fall into this sin the fear of man is a snare for believers as well you think of it in terms of our witness john 18:16 and 17 Describes the Apostle Peter around the fire in the courtyard during the trial of our Lord Jesus Christ in the house of Caiaphas. And it says that the people that were in that courtyard knew that John was a disciple. And a woman came up to Peter and said, are you also a disciple? And Peter, a converted Apostle. The one of whom Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter who made that confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, a true heart-circumcised Christian. Peter the Apostle denied the Lord three times because of the fear of man. And it would be unfair to say, well, he was just afraid of that little girl. Friends, he was afraid that they were going to arrest him and, and crucify him. So let's be fair. But it was the fear of man. But that same Apostle Peter in Acts 5.29 filled with the Holy Spirit proclaimed to the Sanhedrin the religious leaders in Jerusalem he proclaimed is it right for, for us, John and myself is it right for us to obey God rather than men? And he risked his life for the sake of the Gospel. Eventually he gave his life for the sake of the Gospel. And so the Holy Spirit enabled him to repent and to be sanctified in this area. But again, it's a problem for us in our witness as it was a problem for Peter. In our conduct as well. In our conduct. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they're commanded to bow down before an idol and break the commandment of God in their life, in their conduct... What are you going to do? What are you going to do when the government says you have to do this thing that God hates, that God has commanded you not to do? Are you going to fear man? The fear of man is a snare. And can we say that every single person who compromised there in Babylon was unconverted? I'm not sure we can say that. I think we can Think of instances where Christians, perhaps even ourselves, have fallen prey to the fear of man and have bowed to the idol and later come to regret it. But think of the Apostle Peter again. Galatians 2 says that Peter was at a fellowship meal in Antioch, a congregation of both Jews and Gentiles, and the Jews who were being extreme and overzealous for their Jewish identity and for the law of Moses don't have time to get into it, but they were refusing to eat together with the Gentiles. And Paul had to publicly rebuke and confront Peter for compromising and playing the hypocrite and eating with the Jews and turning his back upon the Gentiles because it would have looked bad to these professing Jewish Christians, these Christian Pharisees, it would have looked bad for him to sit with the Gentiles and eat with them, so he he played the hypocrite. And he had to be rebuked. It was the fear of man. So it's a problem. It's something we need to recognize. We can fall into it. God can pull us out of it. Think also of our work. There are many times in the workplace when our boss may not be looking. There are many times in the workplace where there's not the same accountability that there is at other times. And Paul in his New Testament epistles is very concerned For the workplace, uh, well, for the Christian in the workplace, that we have integrity. Ephesians six six, we serve our master, our employer, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Similar comment in Colossians 3, verse 22. bondservants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. So, those whom God has placed over you in the workplace, or in the family, or in the church, they're not always going to be there to police your behavior. They're not always going to be looking over your shoulder The overseers of the flock are not always going to see what you're doing. And so, what it says here is that in every aspect of your life, not the least of which is your work, you need to be accountable to your Master in heaven, to your Shepherd in heaven, to your Heavenly Father. You need to be accountable with integrity to God who sees everything. Not eye service, not men-pleasers. But those who do what they do in the fear of God, knowing that they will give an account for even the things that nobody else saw. Being lazy in the workplace, uh, clocking out before you're supposed to. Oh, well, my boss isn't going to find out, or this or that, whatever it is. Uh, you fill in the blank. But uh, the fear of man can actually empower sin because man isn't as fearful as God is in terms of accountability. Uh, in addition, our worship. Our worship, I mentioned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The command that they were told to violate was the second commandment, the commandment against idolatry. The fear of man can motivate us to participate in things that we shouldn't be participating in by way of Christian worship. Uh, The second commandment tells us that if it's not commanded, it's forbidden. We don't add to God's commandments. And if there are ordinances where, where this is not commanded by God, it's added by man, and man has ordained it, man has put it in the order of worship, man has established this observance or this particular aspect of worship, it's nowhere commanded in the Bible, and now... Men are telling you, you need to participate in this, you need to be a part of this Christian observance, this this aspect of Christian worship that's unbiblical, extra-biblical. There is pressure to conform and to participate in those things, especially because the people who are pressuring you to do it are most likely professing Christians, sometimes some of the most faithful Christians. And we need to be careful. Think of Jesus in Matthew 15, He got in trouble with the Pharisees because he wouldn't participate in the superstitious ritual of Pharisaical hand washing. So they would wash their hands to spiritually cleanse themselves of Gentile filth and they would do that before every meal and Jesus and His disciples before every meal would abstain from that unbiblical ritual and they would obey The biblical regulative principle of worship. If it's not commanded, then it's forbidden in matters of worship and religious significance. If it's not commanded, it's forbidden. Jesus looked weird. Jesus, Jesus experienced awkwardness. People thought he was odd. Why aren't you conforming? Why aren't you doing and participating in this religious ritual with everybody else? but he feared God, and so he wouldn't participate in any religious ceremony that was not commanded in the Bible. We need to be careful of that. The fear of man brings a snare. If you're participating in a religious exercise because you're afraid what other other people might think if you don't, uh, that's an indication that you're heading down this road. And finally, ministry. ministry. Perhaps one of the Most significant areas of temptation for us as Christians because we want the church to grow. We don't want to tell people things that they don't want to hear if we don't have to. We're not out to offend people. That's not our goal. And we want to win people. The winner of souls is wise. We want to bring people along and we want them to come to faith in Christ. We want to be winsome. But the fact is, the fear of man brings a snare if our outreach ministry if my pastoral ministry is chiefly concerned with pleasing other people if it's a sort of codependency where my goal is to make sure that other people are giving positive feedback about me and about the church and nobody's ever offended then that is the fear of man and that brings a snare and you can go all throughout the scriptures i mean paul warned timothy 2 Timothy 1.7, he says, God has not given us a spirit of fear. He, he's given us a spirit of power and love and of a sound mind. But Timothy, don't be afraid. Jeremiah 1, same thing. Jeremiah says, I'm only a youth. I'm intimidated by all of this. God not only says, fear not. He says, you'd better not fear because if you do, I will dismay you before them. He says, you need to trust in My promises and I will make you like an iron wall against them. You need to speak the truth. Jesus said in Luke 6.26 that it's the false prophets who were winning the popularity contests. Woe to you when men speak well of you and never speak ill of you. It was the false prophets that would tell people what their itching ears desired to hear and even in the in the book of Romans Paul warns of preachers and teachers that even his audience would come into contact with at this early phase of the Christian church Romans 16:18 for those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple who are we serving In this church? Who are you serving in your family, in your life, in your witness? Uh, and, And just very briefly before we close, I just want to offer to you a couple things to meditate on so that you can successfully overcome the fear of man. The first is the final judgment. The final judgment. Meditate on it. This is when God issues forth His evaluation on everything that you're doing in your life. And when you're tempted to compromise, understand your decision in that respect will come before this day of judgment. And God will issue His evaluation. The more you anticipate that, the more you're consumed with that. Listen to Paul, 1 Corinthians 4.3 He says, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. I have a clear conscience. That's not my basis. But he who judges me is the Lord. So consider the final judgment. Secondly, consider the glory of Christ who made the good confession. There he was in Caiaphas' house, and they said, we put you under an oath, are you the Son of God? And he knew at that moment, if he said yes, he knew that he would be nailed to the cross, he knew that he would come under the wrath of God on that cross, and he knew that if he didn't make the good confession before Caiaphas, before Pontius Pilate he knew full well that our redemption would be thrown in the circular file it's over and yet he made the good confession not only did he say yes he said yes and he said you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory that's the glory of Christ do you want to be like that? Do you want to be conformed to the image and likeness of somebody who's fallen into the snare of the fear of men, Or do you want to be conformed to the glory of Christ? Finally, uh, a clear conscience. A clear conscience. There is nothing more valuable in life than a clear conscience. In terms of your own peace of mind to know That you are saved to know that your sins are forgiven and to know when you make decisions that you're acting in good faith for the glory of God. There is nothing, there is nothing more joyful and more peaceful than a clear conscience. For Paul to say that I've walked among you for three and a half years, Ephesian elders and Ephesian believers, and I preached the whole counsel of God. I held nothing back and I am free from the blood of all men. And we could go to many passages that say the same thing. My friends, a clear conscience. Nothing will be more joyful than to stand before God on Judgment Day and to hear that commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. I honor those who honor me. And to know with a clear conscience that that is where you're headed. My friends, it's worth it. It's worth being thrown into the fiery furnace of affliction and inconvenience to know that you stand before a holy God having made the good confession such that you have fought the good fight you've run the race and now you're ready to receive the crown let's pray gracious God we give thanks that your word spares not in telling us the truth that you give us the truth The whole truth and nothing but the truth. We pray that you would enable us to be men and women of the truth, that our hearts would yearn for that commendation from Christ, that we would love the truth, that we would profess it and obey it, not be ashamed of it, but know that in fact it is our Savior Himself who is the way, the truth, and the life. Give us a yearning and a longing to be His disciples to love Him at the expense of all else. Lord, we pray, forgive our man-fearing. Forgive our compromises. Forgive us and cleanse us and like Peter, enable us to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen.